from the studios of KPCW in Park City. It's This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about the environment and our relationships with it. I'm Chris Cherniak. And I'm Nell Larson. Well, four decades after the collapse of America's uranium industry, much of its remaining infrastructure, including about half of the nation's 50-plus shuttered uranium mills, waits to be cleaned up including those in Utah. For the first time, the independent nonprofit news organization ProPublica has cataloged uranium mill cleanup efforts at the country's 48 uranium mills, seven related processing sites, and numerous tailings piles. Even after regulators say cleanup is complete, polluted water and sickness are often left behind. Joining us in the first part of the show to discuss this story will be Mark Olalde. He is an environmental reporter and co-author of the piece, the Cold War legacy lurking in U.S. groundwater. Then, in the second part of the show, we'll turn our attention to, yes, I'm going to say it, roadkill. <laughs> it's an important topic. So the Utah Division of Wildlife Resources and Utah Department of Transportation are making it easier for people to provide information about dead animals on Utah roads through the release of a new app, the U- Utah Roadkill Reporter, as part of their new um, wildlife passage program. Mm-hmm. We'll speak with Blair Stringham, Migratory Game Bird Program Coordinator, and also the person who's running this new program for the division. And joining us is Mark Olalde. He is an environmental reporter with the uh, nonprofit independent news organization ProPublica. And he's here to talk about uh, a piece that he co-authored, I believe, titled The Cold War Legacy Lurking in U.S. Groundwater, uh, all about uranium, uh, the uranium industry and mining and the mills and the, the remediation that remains at many of these mills, including several or so in the state of Utah. Mark, uh, thank you so much for joining us this morning on This Green Earth. Of course. Thanks for having me. Ah, perfect. So let's start with some background uh, and some history and get our listeners kind of up to speed about the uranium uh, mining industry. When would you say it started uh, or found its its heyday, and what was all this uranium used for? So the American uranium industry was really booming between the early 1950s and the early 1980s when it collapsed in part because the federal government had been the sole purchaser of uranium in the country, uh, largely for its defense program, and had stopped that purchasing and in part because there were fears about safety due to things like the Three Mile Island accident in Pennsylvania in 1979. So this was largely an industry uh, scattered across the West, uh, around the Four Corners states, uh, mainly at the time. And the uranium that was dug up uh, in the early days was used for, like I said, for the defense program. So this was uranium that was enriched and put into bombs as we uh, raced towards nuclear supremacy to win the Cold War. Okay, so so it, there are mills, like you say, primarily around the Four Corners area, but there there is mines or so and mills in uh, throughout the West, I guess in in uh, Wyoming, um, even a couple back east. I noticed on the map, uh, say in Southwest Pennsylvania or Southeast uh, Ohio, but primarily this is a Western related industry. 
Largely a Western industry. Uh, uranium occurs uh, all around the world, uh, but just we found very high concentrations around the Colorado Plateau. And so we looked at about 50 sites where they milled or, or processed um, and, and further refined this uranium. And, um, you know, for example, the biggest sites were in New Mexico. Uh, we found nine sites in Utah. Um, the most sites were in the states of Wyoming and Colorado. And so, yes, this uh, the, the, the brunt of kind of the, the legacy of the uranium industry uh, and kind of the health and uh, environmental impacts are, are definitely centered kind of in the in the Mountain West and Four Corners region. Okay. Will you tell us about that um, process that takes place at these mills and at these processing sites? Like, how does this turn from you know a mining operation into this enriched uranium? So depending on what kind of the end product is, is this going into a bomb? Is this going into a power plant? Is this doing something else? Uh, there's different steps along the way. But largely speaking, you have large mines, whether they're underground shafts or whether they're just this giant hole in the ground. And then haul trucks will take tons and tons of this crushed rock called ore that is rich in uranium, and they will drive it to a mill. Um, and at the mill, the ore will then be crushed and roasted and dried and processed with kind of these nasty chemical um, cocktails. And the end process from most of these conventional mills is yellow cake. And it uh, looks exactly like it sounds like. And it's kind of a key, uh, a key intermediate step in processing so that that yellow cake can then be shipped off to the next step where, uh, where the, at this point, enriched uranium uh, or refined uranium, I should say, is then enriched into uh, more of kind of an end, an end product. The problem with this is because you're taking all this ore, all this rock, and you're turning it into this concentrated uranium, you have uh, orders of magnitude of waste left behind as you're taking out what are the you know the imperfections or the impurities from the uranium. And so what we looked at is, okay, you've got millions and millions. I mean, we found more than a quarter billion tons of this waste what do you do with that next? Mm -hmm. And and that stays behind at these mill sites. And and what contaminants or compounds, in addition to say residual parts of uranium that might be left behind, what else might be in these uh, uh, tailing tailings? So uranium is the big one, uh, but then you have selenium, you have molybdenum, you have nitrates, sulfates. Uh, uh, just total dissolved solids, kind of salts and things like that. Um, some of these are definitely worse for public health, for wildlife health, vegetation health um, than others. Uh, but the, the you can have a range of things from cancer from these to just, uh, you know, salty water that's, that's tough to grow plants, you know, with. Um, but uh, the problem was we found that the vast majority of these sites were unlined, meaning this waste was put directly on top of the ground and so a lot of the waste seeps down into the ground, into aquifers, and uh, and then contaminated Western groundwater resources. Okay, so yeah, now let's let's talk more about what was you talked about on uh, these areas being unlined. I'm assuming that proper closure of these sites, these tailing sites, required a impermeable liner, a bottom liner, or so of, of some sort. So best practice is is exactly that an impermeable liner underneath, and it's a cap on top uh, because this uh, this radioactive material releases a gas called radon, 
which is carcinogenic to causes uh, lung cancer in humans when we when we breathe it in. And so the, the idea is you should put a liner underneath the pile to stop these contaminants from getting into water. You should put a cap on top to stop uh, this this radon from getting into into the air. And if the you know if the site is you know right on top of a community, you know some of these were in Grand Junction and Grants and Durango and Salt Lake City, um, then you should probably move the waste away from the human population. Uh, so you don't have this uh, this highly toxic and, and low-level radioactivity, you know, directly adjacent to the population. The problem is this uh, this cleanup effort is expensive, and <clears throat> there were not best practices put in place at the outset of the industry because the industry, like I said, started in the 40s and 50s, and the kind of environmental consciousness didn't really start taking root until the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And so you had all these really nasty sites that were not built to standard because there was no standard. Uh, and you didn't have a regulator really come into play until 1974. And then now we turn back and say, okay, we've got this major mess. We did it really poorly in the first place. A lot of this is by populations and it's expensive now. So what do we do? I'm curious as to um, kind of what motivated this research and this investigation now? Like, is there a specific community where this is coming to the forefront or is it something that um, you'd been following for a long time? Um, why now? So this started with a community in Northwest New Mexico where uh, about a year and a half ago, I was tipped off uh, that there was, that there were issues where instead of properly cleaning up this, this mill site, then um, there's a farming community directly adjacent to this giant 22 million ton waste pile that the company in question was simply buying up everyone's properties, making them sign NDAs, making them sign liability waivers, having them move away, tearing down their houses, and then going to the government and saying, wait a minute, no one lives here anymore. We don't need to clean this up to standard, to the current standards, uh, because it's not impacting anyone. And so the government is contemplating giving them waivers, essentially changing the numbers on paper of what is clean water and saying, okay, here are the new numbers. So as an investigative journalist, the obvious question for me became, well, is that how it works at every site? How many sites are, are there? How much waste is there? And at every site that's clean up, do we simply change the numbers on paper and say, good job, you've done enough? Uh, or do we actually force companies to clean up to a, a healthy and safe standard? And so it was really that site in New Mexico that launched this to kind of try to answer that systemic question. Wow. And it gives us a sense of sort of the cost and extent of cleanup, I guess, when you consider the expense of buying enormous amounts of land is, is the easier route, right? There's nothing cheap about remediating uh, groundwater and pulling uranium and selenium that is attached to, to particulate in, in aquifers. There's no doubt about it. It's it's, uh, And this is exactly the point uh, of we can't we can't regulate an industry at the back end. We need to figure out its harms early on and figure out how to regulate it at the, at the forefront. So then when you when it comes time to clean up the kind of polluting industry, well, we've had best practices in place. And so we're not left with a bad option or a really bad option. We're left with a good option and a bad option. We're speaking with Marco Lalde. He is an environmental reporter, investigative journalist with the nonprofit ProPublica. We're talking about a piece that uh, he wrote, I believe, co-wrote. Am I? Am I going to? I want to get that right. 
Do you had? Yeah. Uh, yes, sir. I, oh, uh, okay. I wrote this with a few researchers who helped me shift through thousands of pages of documents. Okay, good. Wow. We want to we'll make sure we <laughs> we'll give them credit. We, we give those interns or whoever credit right when they're do, when it's due. Um, and we're talking about the piece titled "The Cold War Legacy Lurking in U.S. Groundwater." Mark, you mentioned Salt Lake City. Uh, there is a that at least one that I uh, recognized uh, the White Mesa Mill, which I believe is in. Uh, the Ute Mountains down in the southeastern part of the state. But are there other mills or other uh, tailings sites up closer to Salt Lake City? Yeah, so Utah was home to nine mills, uh, nine uh, uranium mills, mm. including the White Mesa Mill, which is uh, right by Blanding and the Ute Mountain Ute community of White Mesa yeah. uh, down in southeast Utah. That, that is the only still... Uh, operating a conventional uranium mill in the country. Mm. And it's it's not even really processing uranium ore. Uh, it's more processing kind of waste from other sites. But that's the only one still that's really still uh, able to operate. Um, there is another one called the Shooter Ring Canyon Uranium Mill, which is on, on kind of standby status in, in Utah. Um, so if uranium were to come back in America, which is highly unlikely, but if it were to come back, it would go through Utah because of, of that fact. Uh, there was one... Uh, on this kind of southern end of Salt Lake City in the Wasatch Front, uh, that waste was moved to the other uh, other side of the Great Salt Lake. So that was kind of done uh, relatively well and to best practices. Uh, but there still were various sites, um, you know, and there was another site pretty well known in Moab uh, that was right on the banks, I mean, feet away from the Colorado River. And that is currently being moved by train about 30 miles north, I believe it is, up to a place called Crescent Junction, mm. um, up by the highway. So Utah definitely, especially uh, kind of on, on the eastern side of the state, definitely was home to quite a bit of uranium uh, uranium production. And again, uh, a number of these sites are on uh, Native American uh, property. So no surprise, once again, uh, they have seen to take uh, kind of the brunt of the impacts associated historically and even presently. Exactly. We found that 14 mills of the about 50 or so that we looked at were, with, were either on, directly on, or within five miles of, uh, of a tribal uh, reservation. Uh, some of them polluted aquifers, and like I mentioned, the White Mesa Mill, that is directly adjacent to the Mount Ute uh, Reservation. You know, we got, uh, we talked about this in the story, but the, the mining and milling issue got so bad on the Navajo Nation that the EPA actually wrote a comic book uh, called Gamma Goat, which is referencing a type of radiation to warn Diné children kind of away from these, uh, these open pits or these toxic piles of waste. And so this, is, this has definitely been an issue uh, like many uh, that have disproportionately impacted uh, Indian country. And of course, you know, currently in Congress, there's discussion about reforming RECA, the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act, which uh, uh, kind of gives a form of reparations to former uranium miners and millers who have lung cancer now because the government lied to them about the health impacts or to people who were impacted by nuclear weapons testing uh, in Nevada and Arizona and elsewhere. And many, many of these of these former miners suffering lung cancer and other other ailments uh, under this act are, of course, Navajo and other um, other tribal members. 
And, and you mentioned the EPA there. Uh, obviously, they, they have a role in this cleanup process. But I'm sure there's probably an alphabet soup of other federal agencies and maybe even state agencies that at least should be involved in formally and properly closing out these sites. <laughs> Do I have that right? Absolutely. I could tell this entire story in acronyms if I, if I needed to. <laughs> this, this goes through largely, um, this largely goes through the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which is an independent uh, federal agency, um, which was, like I said, formed in 1974. But that the kind of problem there is that the industry cratered around 1982. Mm -hmm. And so what was supposed to be a regulatory agency became a cleanup agency. Um, and their co main counterpart is the Department of Energy. And so between the two Excuse me. Between the two, they regulate much of cleanup and uh, enclosure. All right. So, in the remaining few minutes, wh where do we stand? Uh, let me ask first: Are there any sites of these forty-eight or fifty sites that have been properly cleaned up and, let's say, formally closed? So we found that about half of the sites have made it through the full process. Okay. Where the company in question has cleaned it up or the Department of Energy has cleaned it up. The problem though, is those sites are then handed to the Department of Energy to kind of take care of in perpetuity. And we found that about two thirds of those sites were granted those kind of groundwater cleanup exemptions, meaning the government said, you know, you've done enough. Let's change the, uh, the groundwater cleanup standards uh, to kind of say you've done enough. So even that question of a, a site being totally cleaned up is a little bit in the eye of the beholder. Uh, okay, so if I got that right, it's they had a standard for groundwater they they were originally supposed to meet, but then the standard was altered to accommodate a a final as part of the final cleanup and approval process. Uh, yeah, I would say you got that right. It's a fun <laughs> topic. Okay, all right, but. Oh, go ahead. Uh, well, I'm curious. So, what what is the recourse now for communities who are adjacent to these, or you know, those who are concerned about the issue? Like, where where does this go next? That's a great question. That's one of the reasons I brought up kind of this RECA, this legislation, because you know, essentially, we sacrificed leaving the federal, you know, the U.S. through the federal government sacrificed a lot of communities in the West uh, and parts of tribal nations because we needed to win World War II and the Cold War. That was the simple calculus. We have to win these at all costs. But the cost was these, you know, oftentimes rural, but sometimes urban communities in the West. And so we need to decide, okay, is this something we want to put billions of taxpayer dollars into to clean up these sites? Is it something that we want to pay to move these people to, you know, further away from this pollution? Should we be kind of compensating people for health uh, issues? Um, should we just be sticking to our own standards and seeing how much cleanup we can do? But all of these things of we need to make these communities whole because they really were sacrificed for you know for the war effort, um, and you know it, it is tough. Some some of this cleanup is tough, and there's just not an easy uh, environmental kind of remediation solution um, to some of these sites. So that is that is a simple fact. But I will say, in the government's credit, they did take on the radiation question, even if they didn't succeed on the water question. Mm. And so thousands of homes in Grand Junction and in 
Durango were built with this waste. So imagine just being, you know, living and your walls and ceiling and floor are made of radioactive waste. So the government did go in and and clean up many of those houses. They missed some of them, but they did go in and clean up many of those houses and and address at least that most egregious point. Um, So thankfully that's been taken care of, but there, there are still many communities kind of with this waste nearby. And we need to make a decision as a society, you know, what it's worth to uh, to try to make them whole in some way right and and again uh when you say built with the waste i'm assuming that the uh, compound of concern there is radon radon and radon gas seeping into the homes exactly uh radon gas and you know you still have uranium and heavy metals and whatnot in this this kind of sandy material that was used in you know in, in concrete and cement um, you know, and I've, I've I, in the course of this reporting, I spoke to at least 100 people and from all walks of life. And, you know, some of them were medical professionals who kind of told me anecdotally, of course, it's not like a scientific number, but anecdotally told me about treating high levels of childhood cancer from, you know, people who grew up uh, in these communities where this waste was, you know, was just kind of an ever present part of life through construction or through being the hill, you know, next to town. Um, you know, Durango has Smelter Mountain, which is, you know, referencing, uh, you know, referencing some of this processing. So, uh, you know, you, you hear stories and uh, and at a certain point, the evidence kind of starts to mount, uh, you know, about the health impacts from living around this. Right. And, and this story caught my eye because Park City has its own mining legacy right now here. It's mostly heavy metals related. It's not it's not uh, uh, uranium or radioactivity, although we have radon and radon gas in certain pockets of, of Summit County as well. So we have our own legacy of mine waste and tailings that we live with, literally live above in some parts of, of the town. Um, uh, but again, if when, like you say, when properly lined and, and capped, um, it reduces, particularly, again, with heavy metal-based mine waste, lead, nickel, uh, cadmium, etc. You cap those soils, uh, you reduce the exposure almost uh, entirely, unless you dig back into it. So, go ahead, Mike, if you had- I'm just saying that's I mean, that's that's the billion dollar question in the West. Right. Part of this is the health implications. But part of this is the groundwater quality. Right. Um, I was just at the Colorado River Water Users Association, the main Colorado River meeting in Vegas a few weeks ago. And, you know, I'm just going to say my outlook for the river after hearing managers talk about their best plans to save it is not rosy. So if we're going to lose our major surface water sources in the West, we have 40 million people out here uh, that rely just on the Colorado River. Uh, what are we going to turn to next? And mm-hmm. so part of the reason for doing this story, and I think exactly to your point about legacy mining implicator impacts, um, is, is well, if we're polluting our groundwater resources, you know, groundwater that might not be the standard today, well, tomorrow that might be the cleanest source of water we've got. Mm. And so if we're not proactively identifying aquifers that we need to protect and doing everything we can to protect them, uh, well, then we're really making a tough future for the West. Uh, because if we just don't have those water sources, we can't be here. And so I think that's the other side of the coin here. Well, and that's uh, that's a story we can reach back to you uh, and talk more about. Uh, although I will say, Mark, uh, we're at, uh, what, as of last week when we spoke with the <laughs> rep from uh, the snow survey, we're at 100 and almost probably, you know what, I'll say 180% of normal. So we are getting our snowpack this winter. Yay. But... 
that's uh, that's very tentative too. Uh, so, uh, but that's a that's a sideshow that you also have worked on. You cover water issues out west. Marco Lalde, he is an environmental reporter and um, investigative journalist with the independent nonprofit ProPublica. Mark, where can people go to actually uh, read this story? Uh, this would be on ProPublica.org, P-R-O-P-U-B-L-I-C-A.org. Um, we also partnered on this with KOB4 uh, Investigates, which is the NBC affiliate in Albuquerque. If anyone uh, is interested in the, uh, the major mining district there, they can go watch a piece as well. Um, and uh, so I'd send you to ProPublica uh, to go read this and the other great work. Great, great site, great investigative journalism that ProPublica does. And we thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us about your story, uh, the Cold War legacy lurking in U.S. groundwater. Mark, again, thank you so much for joining us this morning on This Green Earth. Of course, it's always a pleasure. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks. And uh, joining us now uh, for the second part of the show is Blair Stringham. He's the Migratory Game Bird Program Coordinator and also uh, DWR's Utah Migration Initiative Coordinator. Uh, Blair, thanks so much for joining us on this Green Earth this morning. Yeah, thank you. I'm happy to be here and talk about wildlife here in Utah. Yeah, so um, we're really excited to talk about um, this subject, the new roadkill reporting app. Um, but let's set the scene a little bit. You know, how how much roadkill do we see in Utah? Like how, you know, how big of a problem is it? So it, it, it is quite a big problem. Um, I don't think most people realize the extent of how many wildlife are being hit on roadways. Um, we, we document some of it by the number of like deer and elk and things we pick up. Um, and we usually pick up about 5,000 deer on roadways in Utah alone. And, and that probably number is quite a bit lower just because a lot of deer either move off of the roadways and they're not picked up or, you know, they make it off the road into the forest and die and things like that. So that number is probably significantly higher. And that's just for deer. Um, with elk, there's probably hundreds of elk being hit. There's moose. And then that, a lot of the smaller animals like raccoons, skunks, things like that. I mean, probably thousands of them as well. So overall, lots of animals are being hit on roadways. Right. And, you know, when you say that number 5,000 deer alone are picked up, when you first said it, I was kind of shocked. I was kind of surprised. And then I started thinking about how many animals we see just on a handful, a small handful of roads here in Summit and Wasatch County. And, and the numbers start to add up. So um, it sounds like there's a relatively new program that you are um, leading for DWR called the Utah Migration Initiative. Tell, tell us about that, the Utah Wildlife Migration Initiative. Okay. Yeah, so uh, most of our animals in Utah move to some extent. Um, and generally, it's, it's kind of a high elevation movement down to lower elevation. Um, and that's basically just so they can find resources throughout the year. Um, you think about like a deer living up at 10,000 feet during the summer. As the snow starts to get deep, um, vegetation becomes less. They have to move down to where they can get resources. And so we've tried to track those movements because animals become really vulnerable as they're moving between summer and winter range, um, particularly with roadways, as we just mentioned. Um, they're moving through newer areas. Um, sometimes they're encountering traffic. Um, they're encountering predators. Um, so we're, we try to document those movements just so we can help them be more safe, um, keep numbers up. Um, the other thing we would look at is development. And so we, as we see development, particularly along the Wasatch Front and the Wasatch Back, we're seeing new housing, you know, 
things going in, we're seeing roads being put in, and those are impacting how the animals move across the landscape. Um, and so we put uh, GPS collars on animals and basically just track them as they move throughout the year. It allows us to identify hot spots of where animals are moving more frequently. It allows us to identify important winter range, important summer range. And basically, as we learn more about animal movements, we can take that and implement it into our management um, in the less urban landscapes, out in the forest, things like that. And we can also work with um, people as they're developing cities and roadways. We work a lot with UDOT to try to make those just more animal-friendly and accommodate people as well as the wildlife that are using those areas. So where do you see hot spots? And I guess I am asking this on a few different scales. One is throughout the state, you know, where do you see kind of the most conflict with, um, or maybe conflict's the wrong word, but do you see the most um, animals hit on the roads? And then also are there specific like features or areas um, that we should keep an eye out for? Yeah, so part of that kind of depends on the year. Um, this time of year when a lot of animals are kind of in the lower elevation winter ranges that we'd call them, um, those are really conflict with what humans are doing as well. So if you think about like the Salt Lake Valley, um, kind of getting up in the foothill bench areas, that's where a lot of the deer want to spend the winter. That also is where a lot of development has happened over the years. Um, and so we see a lot of conflict in those areas. Um, we see a lot of conflict as well probably in like November timeframe as deer are moving from high elevation to low elevation. Um, they cross a lot of roadways. And so areas like Echo Junction, um, some of like Parties Canyon's a big one, um, Highway 6 going from, you know, the Wasatch Front over to Price, um, Highway 40 going from kind of, I mean, really from like Park City all the way to Vernal. Mm -hmm. um, those are probably some of the major ones where we see a lot of conflict with animals um, on the roadways. And go ahead. Uh, well, well, we have a, a bridge here over I-80 that's dedicated to uh, animal crossing. Um, how successful are bridges like that? And how long does it take for a typical animal to recognize like, hey, I can use this bridge to safely cross this road. How long does it take them to adapt to uh, conditions like the offerings like that? Yeah, so there is a little bit of a learning curve there. Um, and so a lot of migration, especially in mammals, um, is a learned behavior that's kind of passed on from mother to offspring. Mm. And so we see a lot of success with those structures, especially after they've been on the landscape for a couple of years. Mm. Um, that one in parties in particular, it, it's in a really heavily trafficked area. I'm sure most people have traveled up and down the canyon. Um, and it's been really successful. Um, when we're able to put those structures in, we also usually put fencing on either side of them for, for quite a ways, just to essentially funnel the animals into those areas. Um, it takes a little while before they start crossing, but once they do, I mean, we've seen reductions of 90% or greater on some of those areas in the number of animals being hit. Wow. And so they can be really successful um, in, in saving animal lives as well as human lives because a lot of these collisions, especially with the larger animals like a moose, it was going to result in fatalities or serious injuries to people, damage to property, things like that. So it's really just a win-win for everybody when we're able to install structures like that. Mm. That's really impressive mm -hmm. that that they can be that impactful, you know, to see such a massive um, reduction in collisions and wildlife car collisions. And I'm sure it's really important yeah. uh, for us locals to stay away from those bridges. It's not mm -hmm. something that we 
want to cross or visit and think like, oh, let's go see the moose cross. Mm. No, I guess that the success of those things is, is related or a function of humans staying away from them. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, in general, animals are trying to stay away from us as yeah. much as possible. And so um, even just your mere presence there, if you're not seeing the animals, they may be seeing you. Mm. Um, we leave scent behind, you know, things like that. So, yeah, as much as we can, we ask people to stay away from those things and avoid crossing them on your bikes or going for hikes or anything like that. Mm. Just stay away from them. So let's circle back to the new app. Um, tell us about it and how it fits in with this issue. Yeah, so we developed this app. Um, we started it a couple of years ago um, in conjunction with UDOT. And so the primary goal um, was for us just to better document uh, the number of animals being hit on roadways, as well as kind of identify where those are happening at. Um, and so we've had some tools in the past that allow us, allowed us to do that to some extent, but um, it was used on a fairly limited basis with some of our staff, some of UDOT staff. Um, and so we wanted to make this more available to the general public so they could report animals. Um, we, we've got a decent idea of some of the major hotspots through the other data we've collected, but we figured this would be a good way for us to find more areas, especially outside of the major roadways where animal vehicle collisions are a problem. Um, it also allows people you know, in neighborhoods in Salt Lake to be able to report an animal, um, and that'll notify us so that we can go out there and take care of it so it doesn't sit there on the roadways for weeks and weeks and draw attention to it and all the issues that come along with that. So. Um, it's, it's been out for about a month, and we're encouraging people to sign up and use it. Um, it's been really helpful to this point. Um, we've gotten, I was looking at the other day, and we had probably 30 or 40 deer um, picked up just in one day alone. So this is wow. a great time to use it because there seem to be a lot of animals being hit, and it yeah. helps us to clean those up as well as to use it for planning efforts in the future to find where we can put crossing structures to try to reduce wildlife vehicle collisions. Now, if um, I'm driving down the road and I see like a deer that's been hit and it looks like maybe it's been there for a while, it's not, you know, brand new. Is that still something that I can or should report to you guys? Or are you only looking for sort of that moment of the the accident, like immediate real-time reporting? Uh, Really, anything would be helpful. Um, Part of the process is really just kind of documenting, you know, where it's happening. And so, even if it's old deer that's been there for a while, um, it would be really helpful for us to know that just because there's likely other ones that will be there as well. And the more numbers of animals we get in locations, the more higher priority it'll be for us. Okay. So walk us through then. Uh, I, I see uh, a deer hit uh, on the side of the road. Uh, what do I do? What's the steps? Okay, so it all starts with downloading the app to your phone. I mean, you do that from the Apple Store or Google Play, um, just as you would any other app. Um, once you do that, um, you register as a user, um, and at that point, you're able to start um, submitting data. So as you're traveling down a roadway, um, and you see a deer, and we ask people not to just pull off the roadway at that exact point, um, <laughs> but you can pass it. Um, if you can snap a quick picture, you can also upload that, um, and just kind of make a mental note of where it was um, and then when you get to, you know, wherever you're going, when you can park your car in a safe spot, um, you go to the app, you open it up. Um, it allows you to basically submit a location for where the animal was. And so when you do that, you can scroll through a mapping process to be, be exactly where that animal was. Um, you enter some information about it. Um, if you're, you know it's a deer, you can just put it's a deer. 
If you don't, there's a list of animals you can choose from to try to figure out what it was. Um, and once you've done that, you submit it. Um, the data comes to us as a notification. And so we have people around the state that will go out and pick up animals. And so they receive a notification. Um, and then as soon as they can, they'll go out and pick up that animal. Um, we do remind people, though, that sometimes it's not immediate. So some areas it's a really high priority. Other areas it may take a week or two before something gets out there. So be patient with us. Um, once you submit it, don't keep submitting it if you see it out there every day. <laughs> okay. um, we're, we're aware of it. We just haven't got a chance to pick it up yet. So. Right. And so you say we haven't. We. Who, who is responsible for doing the pickup? Is it a specific state agency or do local municipalities get involved? How does that work? Yeah, it kind of depends on um, where you're at in the state and probably how high of a priority is. Um, we do quite a bit of it internally as the Division of Wildlife. Um, so we have people that part of their job responsibilities is to go out and take care of this. Um, we also have people that are contracted around the state to run specific routes. Um, and so, um, for instance, um, Highway 6 is a really big area where we get lots of vehicle collisions. And so we'll contract with people and pay them to go out and drive that route multiple times a week and pick up animals. Um, we also have a lot of just other partners like uh, local municipalities, their law enforcement. Sometimes they'll move deer out of roadways or help us with it, um, people like that as well. Um, we ask the public, though, not to really engage with that aspect of the, <laughs> the roadkill okay. part. Um, if you report it for sure, but don't go out and move them yourselves, um, especially if an animal's injured, just call us, call 911 and we can get someone out there to take care of those situations so that people aren't walking around the roadways or, or getting hurt or anything like that. <laughs> so because you mentioned the public getting involved, I, I have to ask this next question. Um, I grew up in a pretty rural area of upstate New York and it wasn't uncommon for people to pick up roadkill and then, you know, take it home and process the meat. Right. Um, is that something that you also discourage here? Uh, no, so we actually, there was a law passed a couple of years ago that it does allow people to, to utilize the animals that are hit by vehicles. Oh, okay. Um, it's not, you can't necessarily just go and pick it up and throw it in your car and drive off. Um, we do have to give you a special permit um, that basically just confirms that you didn't go out and shoot this animal or anything. Um, Got it's basically it. just a way for us to donate it to you. Um, so if people are interested in that um, and they see, you know, a freshly hit elk on the road, they can call one of our offices and we can help you take care of that and allow you to take it and process it and use the meat. Wow. Okay. All right. So um, that permit essentially allows you all to, to track and, and sort of document that this isn't like poaching, I guess. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. It's just a legal way for you to possess the animal. Because um, if, if you don't have that, then we're not sure where it came from or how you got it. And then you kind of you start running into some of the legal consequences of having an animal. Yeah. Illegally. Yeah, and and this is a little this is a little bit of a sidebar, um, but I saw in a previous press release from your from your agency that poaching is a huge problem. There are thousands of people that are caught for these each year in the state, right? Mm. Yeah, yeah. We have lots. We have, uh, I mean, over probably thirty law enforcement officers working um, cases throughout the year on poaching events. Um, we, we're not nearly as staffed as say like you know, the Salt Lake Police Department, but we do have at least one or two people per county that their job is to investigate wildlife incidences, um, to make sure people are being honest. They go out and they contact hunters. You know, they receive tips about 
potential poaching or other types of incidences, and then they'll investigate those. So hmm. it's a big deal. Um, yeah, we did just put a press release out about those, and there's there's a lot more that happened out there than I think people realize. Yeah. Wow. Wow. While we're on that topic, I mean, what is the say? I don't know the top five animals that are poached. Um, a lot of them probably end up being our big game animals. Yeah. Um, just because people really like the antlers, that's generally what it comes down to. Um, and so, especially during the winter when they're more visible on the landscape, um, people will poach them just to have the antlers. Some people do it for the meat. Um, so deer, people, deer, elk, moose. Yep. Probably deer is probably our number one. Um, we do have a lot of like birds, like there's a lot of waterfowl species that are taken huh. either on purpose or accidentally. Um, we have, uh, you know, a lot of people specifically will target like our higher end species, like our moose or elk or mm. bighorn sheep, things like that. Uh-huh. Those generally aren't um, as often just because there aren't as many of them as there are deer in the state. So is there a separate kind of hotline that people can can report activity associated with that? Yep. Yeah, there is. There's a, a hotline that people can call um, and report anything like that. Um, there's also um, a, a our regional offices. They can call those as well um, and get that information to us. Um, once it's to us, we give it to our law enforcement people, and then they begin those investigations. Okay. Okay, so... So maybe circling back um, then just to kind of the app and the wildlife migration initiative, um, how would you, you know, encourage listeners to get involved and participate in the app? Or is there any other information you guys have out there that people can engage with? Yeah, so we actually have um, a Utah Wildlife Migration Initiative website. Um, You can can find that on the internet. You can find it at our webpage. Um, And what that yeah, it's basically just a lot of background information about crossing structures, about migration, um, about animals, use landscape. Um, gives you a lot of, of ways you can be involved in some of those things as well. Um, so I'd, I'd point people to that as well. Um, it's just the Utah Wildlife Migration Initiative. Um, and it, it's a lot of just great information about migration and about what we're doing to help animals move across the landscape. It, it is an engaging website um, for anybody who's interested in looking. Um, and then kind of a follow-up question on, on the app. You know, I'm sure that you'll get hundreds and thousands of these data points submitted. How does that then get kind of, um, I don't know, like processed and integrated into your planning and prioritization for maybe further crossings or things like that? Yeah, that's a great question. So we, we have a program that we use um, that basically will collect all the data multiple times per day. Um, so we have thousands of animals out there, and a lot of those are giving us a dozen points every day. So I think at this point we're up to almost 40 million data points on the landscape. Um, and so we can we can look in this tool, and basically it shows us a map of the state, and we can search for specific areas and see how animals have moved through there. Um, once we do that, um, we have a a team of people. We have wildlife biologists out um, that basically have an area about the size of a county that they are over. Um, they'll use that data as they do my, um, management planning for the species in that area. Um, we have habitat people that work specifically on habitat projects. So they'll go out and do habitat restoration. Um, we have people that work specifically with like UDOT, um, oil and gas companies, things like that to kind of mitigate impacts to wildlife. Um, they'll use that data for planning processes. Um, a lot of our partners at UDOT, they'll use that as they 
start doing, um, putting in new roadways or to modify existing roadways to look and see where animals are going, to put in this crossing structures. Um, really just a whole bunch of partners are using it in a variety of ways to influence you know, development, influence habitat, and influence populations. So it's, it's widely used by a lot of partners. Fantastic. And, and it's great that, um, you know, citizen scientists or community scientists can also uh, contribute through the new Roadkill, Utah Roadkill Reporter app. Um, and we'll, we'll definitely be participating in that yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, well, thanks so much for joining yes. us. This has been DWR Utah Migration Initiative Coordinator, Blair Stringham. Thanks for joining us on the show this morning. Thanks, Blair. Yeah. Yep. Thank you, guys. All right. We've got, we've got about five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I... Um, I have a question for you. But go oh, ahead. all right, all right. Well, I was I was just gonna say that we have a classic news piece brought in today uh, from Chris Cherniak to highlight to highlight what else rising temperatures and the records associated with them. Um, we can always count on Chris to cover the, <laughs> well, the latest data, the latest announcement the, to share the reality. I know. Basically, I uh, know. that this the title of this article out of the Times is "The Last Eight Years Were the Hottest on Record." This is globally speaking, but we can localize that too. It is, and uh, I'm sure that uh, the U.S. West falls under that category as too. I'll just read a couple of paragraphs. The world remained firmly in warming's grip last year with extreme summer temperatures in Europe, China, and elsewhere, contributing to 2022 being the fifth hottest year on record. This is from European climate researchers uh, reporting uh, yesterday. Uh, the eight warmest years on record have now occurred since 2014. As they say, that's eight years ago. So the eight, <laughs> within the last eight years, we've had the eight warmest years on record. Um, just this, this last piece here, you can just go to the New York Times website and, and read this article yourself. Overall, the world is now 2.1 degrees Fahrenheit, plus or minus a half a degree or so, hotter than it was in the second half of the 19th century when emissions of planet warming, carbon dioxide, and methane from the burning of fossil fuels became widespread. So, um, th this is no surprise. This is, right. although I will say I was a bit surprised that the, the last eight years themselves are the eight warmest I know, years on record. no exceptions. Usually it's been, right. hey, the last six out of 10 are the last. Right. No, so not to say that warming is occurring on a linear basis, but it's near linear uh, in its in its rate of increase, uh, and again you can see a nice graph on the on the article. So that's that's the latest on our warming world, and it's starting to make itself known here as we see. Um, just anecdotally, again within the twenty years or so that sure. I've lived here, um, you know we used to have nighttime lows well below zero maybe four, five, six times out of the year. That doesn't happen nearly at all uh, anymore. Our nighttime lows We just had are, some rain last we night rain. here in early January. We, yes, and we, we're seeing these storms that have come through. They are, obviously they bring lots of snow, but the first 
parts of them, maybe the first few hours, are either wet snow or in some cases rain, depending on the elevations you are in this area, um, and, and sleet, which then transitions over to snow. That's not supposed to be happening here, but that's what is happening in a warming world that we have. So that's the latest on that. I wanted to spend, we have another minute. If, Last yeah, week we talked here. quick, uh, briefly about um, the snowpack, Speaking yeah, of snowpack, yeah. and you mentioned that you know some animals, uh, say swan, or benefit from a higher snowpack, and others are stressed by it. So, give us an example of one or another that uh, both yeah. benefits from it, and one that is stressed by higher snowpack. Yeah, Go. yeah. <laughs> All right, sixty seconds. Yeah. yeah. So. It, I think that sometimes it's counterintuitive because you think, oh, that huge layer of snow must be just a challenge for all wildlife. Like, yeah. how do they manage this? It's cold. Um, but for some animals, they'll live underneath the snow in what's called the subnivian habitat. Mm. And so they're underneath the snow and that layer of snow insulates them and keeps the temperature underneath their pretty warm and pretty consistent. And so when we have deep snow years, it can actually be easier on those species, often small mammals. Um, it can be easier on those species than the colder and or just even drier winters where they don't have that layer of protection. So like if there's a big snow drift around like a big, you know, tree or bush, often you'll see lots of little tracks leading into mm. that. You'll see a hole or two. And that's where, you know, mice or um, like weasels or rabbits are creating their homes. Um, so for it's the safer for them mm -hmm. in terms of... Uh, uh, well, literally safety from predators. Yeah, yeah. And also warmer, in Warm. a sense, warmer. It's just like a it's down thermal. coat. The air in that snow is in a real insulator, just like we have, you know, the air in kind of our coats that insulate. And then for animals that move around, that's where there's there's more of the challenge. They've adapted to yeah. have to have legs that you know, long legs that can like manage that, but still take like an elk or a deer. Right that deep snow can be more of a challenge and they'll probably change their movements accordingly. So it's an interesting and, thing to watch and to track. And, and access to food becomes more difficult because right. of the snow layer. It's buried. Although maybe yeah. in one layer, the more snow you have, the higher they are <laughs> tromping around and the, and the easier can some reach can reach more up of the... into the scrub oak and others. Right. So, okay. So they adapt. As they adapt they and they're, they're well adapted for this. Yes. That's why they live here. But it's, it's interesting. You'll have different impacts each each year depending on the season. Well, okay. I think it's time to wrap up. Oh, yeah. Let's thank our sponsors and underwriters who make the show possible. They include Recycle Utah, Utah Open Lands Conservation Association, Berkshire Hathaway Home Services, Utah Properties, San Francisco Design, and, of course, listeners like you. You can email your thoughts, comments, and ideas for future shows to thisgreenearth at kpcw.org. The interviews for this show will be posted on the KPCW website later today. Thanks again for joining us. And remember, this is KPCW 91.7 FM Park City. Tune in and listen like a local.